Let's bow to the together once again. Father, our hearts desire this morning. Lord, our desire, my desire, is that you will draw near to us and that you will reign over us and lead us on righteous paths for your name's sake. We pray that you'll do this through your word and that your word will instruct us, that it will encourage us, that you'll give us assurance and confidence, and that you'll give us a greater understanding of who you are, that you are love, and that you have manifest your love for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you'll use your word to manifest your love to us, but also to enable us to manifest our love to one another, to manifest your love to our neighbors and to the outside world. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll speak to us, that you'll humble us, give us soft ears and soft hearts and open our eyes, that we may behold your glory. It's in the righteous and good name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to you again. My name is Randall Breland. I want to welcome visitors who are here with us. We're thankful you're here. Or if you're tuning in with the live stream, we're so, uh, so grateful that you're tuning in to us. And I have the joy here of serving as an elder. And uh, it's a great privilege to stand before this congregation this morning to bring this word. I want to encourage you to get out your Bibles. You can open up to 1 John chapter 4 towards the end of the New Testament, and that's where we'll be spending most of our time today. 2015 was an, what I might call an extremely difficult year for me and my family. You see, many of you know, many of you may not know, because of my own sin, uh, I had to resign here as an elder, and I also had to resign from the Ph.D. program at Southern Seminary. And it was a grievous and humbling time. Yet despite that difficulty, and despite the humbling it brought, it provided an opportunity for God and this church to show God's redeeming love to me. I'll forever treasure the song, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. After I resigned, we sat in a pew in our old building, and there was probably 15 people on that pew, which you might imagine it was tightly packed because all these people wanted to sit with us and love us. And there we, sat, we sang these healing words. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And as I thought of Jesus' shed blood, as I thought of his finished sacrifice, as I thought of his victorious resurrection from the grave, I rejoiced that God remained my Savior forever. I reveled in God's uncompromising love for me. And I was overjoyed by the outpouring of love 
that the people of God, the saints at Kenwood, showed to me and my wife. Our subject today is the love of God. And it's how to manifest God's love to one another. The need to grow in our knowledge, in our understanding of God's love is paramount to our faith. And the need to picture and to show that love to one another in our deeds and with our words is even more paramount. Because it's essential not only to show God's love, but 1 John 4 teaches us that manifesting God's love is essential to our confidence and assurance as believers. And so the question I want to ask all of us today, and I think it's the question that John the Apostle would have us ask as we read this passage, is this. Do you know and practice the love of God? Do you know and practice the love of God? Our misunderstanding of God's essential nature at times can prevent us from thinking rightly about God. We can doubt that God's love is manifest for us, and we can doubt that God's love can manifest itself through us. And so we need a robust understanding and comprehension of God's love and of Trinitarian redemption so, we both, so that we might both know God's love and practice God's love. So we look here at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, and this little short passage is, in a sense, the climax of John's ethical exhortations in this little book. John's writing to a small group of churches, uh, perhaps in and around the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And John wants to give assurance to these believers that they have eternal life. A group of teachers in the church had, it seems, challenged Christian orthodoxy by diminishing the seriousness of sin, by denying that Jesus came in the flesh, and by making it more difficult to practice brotherly love in the church. And so John answers these teachers in this little book point by point. He says, God is light, and God and God's people cannot tolerate sin. He says that the orthodox confession of faith must include, look at 1 John 4, 2, a confession that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And then... He begins in chapter 4, verse 7, to complete his argument by teaching that God is love and commanding the church to love one another. So look with me here at verses 7 to 10, where John tells us to practice the love of God. John tells us to practice the love of God. He begins with a summary statement in verses 7 to 8, and let's read together there. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John begins by calling his audience beloved. John so prizes and so loves this congregation, these churches, that he grants them the fullest of his affection that he has to offer by saying, you are beloved. 
John is practicing exactly what he's about to teach them in this passage. Notice these phrases here in verse 7. Love one another. and Love is from God. There's a variety of terms that are used for love in the New Testament. And John had a variety of terms that he could have used. But the term he used here is the strongest one at his disposal. It's the verb agapao. All right? You may not know Greek. That's fine. What I, th- this term is talking about much more than friendship or companionship or passion. It's talking about sacrificial love. And so John uses this term to apply to the Lord. What kind of love does God practice? What are we to say of God's love? And he uses this term to say it's an absolute and sacrificial love. This kind of love, it only exists in one place. God. God is the source of true, absolute, sacrificial love. And thus, it's only those who've been born of God, those who have received the new birth by the transformation of the Holy Spirit, who are capable of showing God-like love. Notice the beginning of verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. The heart of sin is selfishness. When God saves us, he transforms and replaces our hard and selfish and rebellious heart with a soft, others-oriented, submissive heart. And without this new birth transformation, without being born of God, as John says here, you cannot understand and practice God-like love. Notice at the end of verse 8, these beautiful words, so simple. God is love. He mentions this term love in these verses 27 different times. And down in verse 16, you'll notice he repeats once again that God is love. And for John, love is much more than passion or emotion or desire or even friendship. While it is all those things, this is what God's love is. God is radically committed to putting aside his interests in order to care for and to give of his life and to give of his glory for the good of others. For God, love is about giving completely of himself. God's story embedded in the pages of scripture prove that this is the kind of love that God practices. The scriptures, uh, they ring with a refrain. His steadfast love, it endures forever. I love this little book. I don't know how many of y'all have this in your homes. The Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have this book, whether you're a parent or a theological student or a new Christian, you should read this little book because it will teach you about God's love. Here's what she writes to describe who God is after the fall. God loved his children too much to let the story in there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day, he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen to this. You see, no matter what, In spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, 
never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that beautiful? And this is what the pages of Scripture testify, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God has loved his people and he has loved the world with an always and forever love that never stops, that never gives up, and that never breaks. Praise the Lord. Highly encourage you to pick up that book and read through it to learn of God's love. If we want to rightly understand God's love, then we need to keep looking to verses 9 to 10 to help us build up our picture of God-like love. Notice that verses 9 and 10 begin with the same two words. If you're looking at the ESV, it says, in this, and then again, in this. We might understand in this is saying something like, this is how. So John's now going to take his summary statement, and he's going to give us two examples, two illustrations, two explanations of how God has shown his love. He's going to give evidence. Look at verse 9, where John explains the first truth, that God sent his only son into the world. Verse 9 reads, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Language reminiscent of John 3.16, we read that John sent his Son into the world. And this Son the Lord Jesus Christ is as the Nicene Creed states. He's the one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God. The one begotten from the Father before all the ages. Light of light. True God of true God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. There is no one like Jesus. And there is no greater act of generosity and no greater act of love than the Father's giving of the one and only unique Son, the Lord Jesus. I have some props. My daughter uh, has this beloved elephant blankie, which she's kindly let me borrow. And we're hoping she doesn't notice too much here, uh, lest we have wailing. Uh, but she loves this blankie, and she has cuddled this thing for three and a half years like no other blankie has been cuddled. She's cuddled it so much that it's basically an extension of Juliana, and it, if you smell it, it kind of carries the essence of Juliana, too. And uh, we're, we're concerned, you know, when you have these beloved blankies, parents understand this, you don't want to lose the blankie, you don't want the blankie to fall apart because there's, there's going to be a great crisis, and so... My wife decided that she was going to get an imposter elephant blankie. And Bethany switched and gave it to Julie. Julie's about one and a half this time. She's just beginning to talk. And Julie held up the blankie and she looked at it and she said, My blankie? Not my blankie. There's only one unique blankie for Julie. In the same way, there is only one unique Son of God. And God so loved the world that he sent him into the world. And why did he do this? Don't miss the end of verse 9, what it says. To give us, you, me, our church, the world, all who believe in him. To 
give us life. And this is eternal life, as Jesus prayed, to know God and the one Lord Jesus Christ. This is resurrected life. This is life that is eternal fellowship with the God who is love. God sent his only son into the world, and now in verse 10 we get the second example. God sacrificed his only son for the world. Look at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is at the heart of the New Testament. It's the heart of New Testament teaching. It's the heart of how we understand what the gospel is. And this word propitiation means something like satisfaction for God's wrath. Satisfaction for God's wrath. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. When he died for sins as a sacrifice on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross makes God propitious to us. You say, well, what does propitious mean? It means something like satisfied or pleased. When Jesus died on the cross, God became pleased with us us because his wrath was removed from us. And it was put onto his son. Notice in verse 10 that God sent his son for our sins. We're all broken arrows who cannot hit the righteous target of God's goodness. We've all sinned against God and one another. We've rebelled. We've pursued our own selfish desires and our own selfish ambitions. We've acted wickedly and we've hated God and we've hated others. And because of our sin, because of our treachery, our rightful fate is death, an eternal condemnation in hell, forever separated from the wonderful love of God. But there's great news, isn't there? It's right here in verse 10. God sent his son into the world as a sacrifice for our sins, for our rebellion. And Jesus satisfied God's wrath and he rose victorious from the grave. And now he offers forgiveness and grace and eternal life with God to all who repented their sins and turned to him and believe in him. Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you turn from your rebellious way of life and turn and give yourself to serving God in the way of love? God is love. Think about those words. There's this dynamic simplicity to those words. God is love. And when we hear them, something resonates in our soul, doesn't it? And we say, I want that. But then there's possibly for some of us something else in our soul that says, is God really love? Does he really love me? Let me answer your doubt by considering in this very passage that we see the Trinity. We see the Father. We see the Son. We see the Spirit in action together. Verses 9 and 10, we just talked about the Father sends the Son. And the Son gladly obliges and submits to the Father and accomplishes the work of salvation and accomplishes the Father's will. Verse 14, we see the same thing. Jesus is called Savior, and God is called 
father. Speaking of the relationship between the father and the son. Then in verse 13, we haven't got there yet, but don't miss that the salvation and love of God is then applied to us by his spirit. It says he gives to us of his spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit. So in this passage, if you pay attention, we see the Trinity in action, loving us and loving one another together. God is not a loner who just stares in the proverbial mirror, congratulating himself and soaking in his self-centered isolation. That's not God. The essence of God, and we see it in the Trinity, is to give life. It is to enjoy fellowship with others. God has been in an eternal relationship in the Godhead for all of eternity. God is love because God is Trinity. Think about that. God is love because God is Trinity. The Trinity is the story of how God the Father eternally loves and eternally begets or eternally gives life to God the Son and God the Spirit. And then God the Son and God the Spirit, they turn around and they gladly submit to the Father and they carry forth the Father's will with abundant joy. And each member of the Trinity admires and appraises the other two members, their beauty and their goodness and their glory. And together, the Trinity shares an abundant life with one another. And they give this life to us. So effusive is the beauty of these eternal relationships within the Trinity. They're like this magnificent, overflowing fountain of goodness and beauty and love. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to visit Niagara Falls. It's quite the fountain. 3,160 tons fall across Niagara Falls and down 167 feet every second. Every second, that's three quarters of a million gallons of water that empty the four Great Lakes to the west and uh, go down into Lake Ontario. Together, all this water makes up one-fifth or 20% of the world's fresh water supply. Not only that, we've built power stations around these falls, and the power from the water generates 4.9 million kilowatts of electricity. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means it can power 3.8 million homes. Niagara Falls is this overflowing fount that gives life through fresh water and electricity. Yet God's love, it flows so much more abundantly, with so much more force, it makes Niagara Falls look like a trickle. Jesus said in John 17, 24, which Todd read earlier, Thank you for your prayer, Todd. You love me before the foundation of the world. There has never been a time when God has not loved. Theologian Michael Reeves describes the idea that God is love because God is Trinity in this way. Listen to his words. This is the triune living God, a father whose very being has eternally been about loving his son, pouring out the spirit of love and life on him. Here is a God who is love, who is so full of life and blessing that for eternity 
He has been overflowing with it. Hallelujah. Culture tells us all you need is love. It tells us to love ourselves, to pursue love with others. And as long as love is your intention, then you're doing good. This is not the love of God. Our love should conform to the pattern of God's self-sacrificial, self-giving love. And our love should be driven by our experience of God's love as we continue in fellowship with him. We love as God did, by denying ourselves, just as Jesus did. Not by looking for self-fulfillment. We're not called to seek ultimate love outside of God. And in fact, not only are we not called to seek ultimate love outside of God, we are called to give ultimate love on behalf of God. We don't need to fill up our love tanks with this world. It will disappoint you, and it will deceive you every time. In fact, it's only when we put our affection for the things of this world away that we can really come to see how glorious it is to be filled with and to sustain by the life-giving love of God. We cannot simply fight sin by repenting. We must fight sin by pursuing a greater affection, a deep-set love for God and an experience of God's love for us. This is great news. God is love because God, it is Trinity. And it's when we behold the Trinity that we learn of the true beauty and the glory of the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. And then it's our knowledge of this love and our fellowship in the love of God that enables us to rightly love others. Right? Knowledge of God's love enables us to love others as we ought. Folks, theology is not lifeless boredom. We've been doing an exercise in theology here because theology gives life and it teaches us to love. Pick up a theology book and read it. If you want to grow in theology, might I recommend two I've quoted from. This is Michael Reed's little book, Delighting in the Trinity. It's short. It's really approachable. And you can read more about what I've been talking about, how the Trinity loves one another for eternity and loves us. It's excellent. If you don't own the Jesus Storybook Bible, whether you're five or 70, read this book. It tells the story of God's love and the language is beautiful and will cause you to meditate on the goodness and glory and love of God. John says in verses 7 to 10, practice the love of God. Now in verses 11 to 18, he tells us to perfect the love of God. Perfect the love of God. Look with me at verse 11 to 12 where we have another summary statement. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So once again, we get this summary statement in verses 11 and 12, and John's just restating that our love is motivated by and grounded in God's love for us. 
I want you to notice this word perfected. It's repeated several times through the passage, through verses 11 to 18. You get it twice again in 17 and again in verse 18. And it somewhat frames this section and somewhat forms a motif or theme for this section. This verb perfect has the idea of to finish or to accomplish or to bring something or someone to its goal. And notice back at the end of verse 12 that it's his love that is perfected in us. And even notice the tense of the verb here. It's passive, is perfected. It's God giving his love to us that enables us to love others. We're enabled by the new birth. It's those born of God through the Holy Spirit of God to practice God's love. Turn back with me to James chapter 2. I want you guys to see another place where this word is used to help you understand what John is talking about. It's just a few pages over. And James 2 verse 22 uses this same word in relation to faith. Let's look at it there. James 2 verse 22 says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed... That's the word here. We could translate that faith was made perfect by his works. How do you perfect faith? You don't fix faith. You don't repair faith. Works complete faith or they perfect faith by putting it into action. Works perfect faith by putting it into action. And in the same way, We have an assignment from God with his love. We are to put his love. We are to love others. We are to put it into action and we are to so perfect his love with our words and our deeds. Notice once again, as we keep moving, that the term by this is once again repeated in verses 13 and verse 17. So once again, John's given us a summarizing statement, and then he breaks it down with two further explanations. Stop and notice the structure of the Bible. Isn't it beautiful? And it helps you read it when you notice these words. So now John expands the summary statement in verses 13 to 16. He tells us that God has given us of his spirit. Let's read these together. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Doesn't it sound like John 17? So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Here it is again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. Romans 5.5 teaches that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He loved us so much that he gave himself to us. And as a person born of God, we're able to both experience the divine love and we're able to extend that divine love to others. It's his love that we send by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I want you to notice here, it's not enough time to unpack all that's in these verses. I encourage you to meditate on them and think on them. So there's some beautiful truths here. But I do want you to notice that there's a link between being in fellowship with God and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, and this is important for how we understand love because what we think about God and what we believe about God has direct implications for how we love others. Our theology is never divorced from our practice. This word abide can be translated something like remain or to continue in. And it's our continual confession about Jesus and our continual belief in Jesus that enables us to continue in direct fellowship with God, to be in him and he in us. And it's through this confession, it's through this ongoing fellowship that we come to know the love that God has for us. And we come to understand that God is love because God is Trinity. And then we give that love to others. And as we perfect the love of God to others, we prove that we belong because we continue to pursue a lifestyle of loving others. John's second explanatory statement comes in verses 17 to 18. And now he explains that the manifest love of God brings assurance, confidence to the believer. Oh, don't we all need this? Look, at, look with me in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This famous phrase, perfect love, casts out fear. We might translate completed love. Love in action casts out fear. We might reword it this way. It's the knowledge and the practice of God's love in our lives that gives us great confidence. That's John's point here. Do you want to have insurance? Well, it's knowledge of God's love. God loves me. He really is love. And then it's the practice of that love, perfecting that love in our words and our deeds that gives us confidence and assurance before God that we indeed have been born of God, that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. And John is suggesting that if we fear judgment, maybe we haven't rightly comprehended God's love. Those born of God know God's love, and they manifest that love. They perfect that love to others. And as a member of God's family, you love the family, right? We are sons and daughters of the Father, and the Lord Jesus calls us his brother. I love when Mary's at the tomb in John 19 or 20. Forgive me, I forget the chapter. And she's talking to him, and, and he tells her, go and tell who? My brothers. We could add in my sisters. Jesus is glad to call us his brothers. And as members of the family, we act like the head of the family, and we act like the older brother of the family. I want to return to the story from 2015. When I stepped down as an elder, I want to tell you all that God's love was perfected. It was made manifest or accomplished 
by the saints here at Kenwood in such an incredible way for me. I remember Joshua Riker hugging me and weeping for several minutes. We became best friends overnight. Praise God. Matt D'Amico kindly, he accompanied me to the library and just helped me turn all my books in so I didn't have to do it by myself in shame. Chris Birch came over two days in a row and sat with me and talked with me and processed with me and prayed with me and put wind in my sails. Paul Tennant called and he just wept with me. And another friend, a former member, many of you remember Jerry Jenkins. He's in Salt Lake City now. He called me and he said, I was so sad I went and bought a donut. I said, well, can you bring me one? And unbeknownst to me, Pastor Jim had put his name and his reputation on the line. And he had convinced my gracious supervisor to let me continue at my studies in Southern. Denny took me to lunch several times. And months later, he fought and made it possible for me to return to full-time status as a student. Kim, what I, I learned, and it, it was the hard way. I don't want you to learn love this way. But I learned that God is in the business of redeeming lives. This is what he does. And he calls his church, all of us together, to make that redeeming love known and to make it manifest in our midst. We ought to love one another in this way. Do you practice the love of God? Consider how magnificently God has shown his love for us through the work and the life of Jesus. How much less is it for us to love one another and to joyfully give of our time, our energy, our gifts, our money, our sleep, so that we can love one another and so that the people of God can flourish. Here's how John himself summarizes it. Look up at 1 John 3, or perhaps you've got to turn the page backwards, verse 16. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? When members of our church lack the basic necessities of life, we must provide for them. I think about the benevolence fund that we've had going for a few months in the midst of Corona, where so many in our midst have lost their jobs, and you guys gave so generously. I mean, the elders, we were overwhelmed by how you gave. Thank you for showing love to this church. Dozens of you cooked dozens of meals for the abbots in their time of severe crisis and shown great love to them. And I could go on and on with tremendous examples of how this church loves so well. I want to commend you. Thank you for loving so well. And I want to encourage you and exhort you to excel all the more. We can spend hours talking about how to concretely love one another. There are 59, okay, note that, 59 separate one another commands in the New Testament. Here's a sampling. Be devoted to one another. Do not lie or grumble to one another. Bear with one another. Build one another up. Correct one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. Sing to one another and with one another. Thank you, Matt, for enabling us to do that so well. Comfort one another. Look to the interests of one another. Confess your sins to one another. 
And here's one I fear we all forget too often. Pray for one another. If you don't have this beautiful directory that Anna D'Amico has put together, I encourage you to get a copy of it. Stick it in your Bible a couple times a week or once a week. Take it out and pray through the directory. It's got area for notes for you to take notes on what's going on in people's lives so that you can follow up with them and so that you can see how the Lord is manifesting his love in our congregation by answering our prayers. And we do all this because we are members of one another. We belong to the family. We belong to the Father's family. For those of you who are doubting, I want you to look to what John says here. God wants to manifest his love to you. He wants you to see his love manifest in how you love others. And as Zephaniah 3 said so beautifully, the Lord wants to quiet your anxious soul with his love. Be confident not in yourself, but be confident in the manifest love of God. John says, practice the love of God, verses 7 to 10. Verses 11 to 18, he says, perfect the love of God. And now we finish with our final point. He now says, prove the love of God. Prove the love of God. Look with me at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. One of the best ways for us to understand what love is, is for us to understand what it is not. Love brings and gives life. Love dies to self. It pursues others and it says with generosity and joy take take everything I have for your good love is delighted in the joy of others and in their blessing and in their good fortune but hate is the opposite of these things hate takes life hate pursues self at the expense of others and it says give to me Hate is envious, and it's jealous of others. You can't stand that others have joys and blessings that they don't. The one who hates only knows their self. They do not know God. But the one who loves knows God. And even though he's never seen God, he has seen God and his love perfected in the saints. And he knows and he rejoices in this God-like, sacrificial, joy-filled love. We are called to love one another and we're also called to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the second great commandment. And there's much talk of justice in our culture. And there's a renewed call to, to write the tragedies that Centuries of tragic slavery and hateful and partial Jim Crow laws and wicked and heinous racism has wrought. We do well to weep and to lament and to show compassion when those who are hurting 
and scared and confused right now. It's a hideous reality that so many in our culture have to live in fear and under constant suspicion. We need to fight racism in all wickedness in this way. Here's the first way. Here's where we must start. We have to plant more churches, and we have to preach the gospel. We cannot shirk from this. Racism is a heinous sin, and it begins with wicked hearts that hate others. And if we want to fix racism in our society, we have to introduce them to the selfless and loving Savior, God. It's only He who can transform wicked and selfish hearts that take life and change them to selfless and loving hearts that give life. Is that it? Is that all we're to do? No, I, I, I don't think that's the sum total of what we should do to love our neighbors right now. We should put hands and feet to our love. We should oppose injustice. We should oppose partiality. We should oppose murder. We need to vote for just leaders and we need to strive for just laws. And even more, here's an even better way. We need to engage people. We need to engage our communities and talk and listen. And as Christ Jesus has taught us, we need to be peacemakers. We need to turn the other cheek. We need to go the extra mile when asked. We need to obey the golden rule. And we need to perfect the love of God with everyone with whom we come into contact. Delighting in the love of God and delighting to show that love to others is the way to give life. Our church may not be able to change the culture single-handedly, but we can bring the love of God. We can make it manifest to our neighbors and to one another. We can be an outpost of the kingdom where God has planted each of us, whether it's in our neighborhood or our workplace or where we get our hair cut or where we eat out or in our sports league. We can make the love of God manifest. Do you know the love of God? Do you practice it? If you know the love of God and if you see it clearly, if you understand that God is love, because God is Trinity, this fountain of goodness and love, then you can have every confidence. You can have every assurance that God will abide in you. That he will perfect his love in you so you may love the church as you should and so you can love your neighbor as he would. Let's pray together. We praise you, Father, that you are love. We further praise you that you have manifest your love to such a degree that you sent your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus, as a satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Father, we confess that we are all too often far from the mark of your generous self-giving love. We need your grace. We need your help. Your grace to rescue us 
to enable us to know you rightly, to love others sacrificially. We pray that you'll give us clarity at Kenwood as we seek to bring you glory by the way we love one another and the way we love our neighbors. May you cause your glorious gospel to abound through our lips and through our hands and through our feet so that all those who hate may repent, receive forgiveness, and enter into fellowship with you and so be transformed to those who love. It's by the glorious love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that we pray. Amen.